What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. All statements and opinions expressed by guests of the Adult in the Room podcast are strictly their own and do not necessarily reflect the beliefs or opinions of the host, producers, or advertisers. All interviews are presented in their most complete possible form in the interests of free speech. No statements should be interpreted as financial, legal, or medical advice. Listener and viewer discretion are strongly advised. It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Welcome to the Adult in the Room podcast. I'm Victoria Taft. You know, things are fraught. Uh, They look and feel like they're getting worse. And they feel that way because they are. And you're not alone. We're all feeling that way, or at least people who are paying attention are feeling that way. I mean, we've got bank failures. We're told that the economy is just fine, though. Everything's great. Once again, the feds bastardized the idea of what insurance is, replacing the idea with the American taxpayers' dollars as a backstop. But don't you dare try this at home. We're told guns are responsible for violence, but punishment is reserved only for law-abiding gun owners. The criminals are being set free for whatever reason. Well, some of them are. Wholly unconstitutional laws that lawmakers know are unconstitutional, but they pass anyway because they are thumbing their nose at what is the right thing to do, what is the legal thing to do, and saying to us, hey, see in court in five years after we've normalized this new law. Riots aren't bad if Antifa and BLM do them, right? That's the way the world has been going recently. Nearly six million people pour over the border, allowed by the very department of Homeland Security that was created after 9-11 to stop the next attack and to secure the homeland. But stop talking, you nationalist person, because remember the last nationalist authoritarian, you Nazi? It is unbelievable. It's surreal. It feels like a we're living in a psyop. And our very first freedom of movement is shut down with what looks very much like a man-made bug that we financed. But shut up and take your medicine or else, America, you selfish person, you. Law enforcement agents were all over the January 6th crowd, and now we learn them. There are among them the provocateurs at the west entrance of the Capitol building, urging people to go in. Most of the people involved in the Gretchen Whitmer so-called kidnapping plot were FBI. I mean, what is going on here? The symbiotic relationship between the seventh floors of the highest echelons of the DOJ and the FBI, it's, it's astonishing. What are we living through? When the DNC wanted to shop the Donald Trump as a Russian secret agent hooey to America, uh, it went first to the friends of the FBI and then to the media, who all faithfully complied. What happened to the media? And the media compliantly just, they just went along, creating an overwhelming narrative with their dominance, dismissing all other reports as wingnut propaganda, and they got NGOs and the government and everybody else to go along with the charade. The media awarded themselves with pretty awards and plaques. Joseph Heller wrote in Catch-22, they all agreed that it was neither possible nor necessary to educate people who never questioned anything. Oh, we're questioning things. 
but they don't want to talk to us. And he also said in that same book, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. The change in the media happened in and around the Watergate story, an explosion of uh, go get them, invest, so-called investigative journalists, whereupon the media faithfully received as, as received wisdom, little nuggets of information from official Washington and sat like a bird in the nest in the springtime, just waiting for the mama bird to feed it. You've seen this and you know, and you know what, haven't you said to yourself, more than once. I know I have, and you've heard me say it. What the media did in whatever story of the day you're looking at sure makes me want to go back to Watergate and reread the coverage to find out what they didn't tell you. What really happened there? And my guest, a former federal prosecutor and attorney in private practice, did just that. And he has counted the cost of such a horrible and lazy and compliant media, a media that got so things so, so wrong with such overwhelming narrative building that bad public policy was built on it. I remember Watergate. I remember what they did. I was a kid, but I remember and as an adult and journalism for 30 years. Oh, I've seen the, the bad fruits of that. Then hidden in his book, The Mysteries of Watergate, What Really Happened? My guest today, John D. O'Connor, counts the costs of how wrong the media got the Watergate story and other stories. He calls it its bitter harvest. He was an assistant U.S. attorney in Northern California. He worked on the OPEC oil embargo cases, had a hand in the Patty Hearst kidnapping case, the savings and loan crisis in the 80s and 90s. Every 10 years, we get one of those, something like it. He defended R.J. Reynolds' tobacco and significant smoking and health litigation, which I want to go into it with him about. He repped uh, Coach Don Nelson against Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. And more pointedly, he outed and then represented Mark Felt, otherwise known as, do you know who that is? Do you know who that is? That's Deep Throat. John D. O'Connor, welcome to the Adult in the Room podcast. Thank you very much for coming on. Good to be with you, Victoria. I know that was sort of a long-winded intro, but I like to contextualize things for the viewers and the listeners out there because I believe that we're not being told a lot and it's, you know, it's good for the graybeards like me to come along every once in a while and say, you know, here's, here's the backstory on that. And you are the backstory on so much. Your pro public and private law practice is remarkable. You've seen a lot of stuff. What is that stuff that you see that keeps you up at night? Well, you just said it about the background. You said it in a very pithy fashion, Victoria. Watergate, if you go back to Watergate, and I wrote this book, Postgate, that explains it all. But very quickly, as you mentioned, you have a partisan press that doesn't tell you the truth. Watergate, one of the things that the, press, the, the Post clearly did not tell the public was about an out-of-control intelligence agency that was acting way beyond their purview and for their own interests, and they got away with it. So you have that, and then there's the combination at the time. The legislature was all Democratic. Those three forces, and the Democrats knew that they were covering up too. So these, the, those three forces, the politicians combined with the intelligence agencies who are out of control, combined with the partisan press, and the public 
does not know what's happened. They get the exact opposite information. And we remove one of the most successful presidents in United States history. And by the way, who wasn't really much of a conservative. He was slightly center. Oh, he was a progressive. Yeah, right. He was a center. At least I would call him center right. Some of the things were very progressive. He had Daniel Pat Moynihan uh, trying to establish a family assistance plan. He opened up uh, China, et cetera, et cetera, had wage and price controls, which, by the way, I enforced later on uh, as an assistant U.S. attorney. So I've been involved in a lot of that. I was actually worked back in Washington when, guess what? My father's partner at Richard Nixon's request founded the EPA. So that's another fairly uh, liberal thing that he did. I was in the Uh, office. There's there's nothing liberal or conservative about wanting clean air and clean water. It just is. When when the rivers are catching on fire, you know, you got to do something. Right. And that's my father's partner said that. He was a fisherman. He said, I'm going to clean the water and I'm going to clean the air. And by God, he did it. Now, of course, the EPA is now expanded beyond its purview. But if you stuck with what Bill Ruckel's house uh, did, uh, you would have a perfect EPA. But now let me take what I just told you and which really conforms to your intro. Now take it to the present. Here's what keeps me up at night. We have a some out-of-control intelligence agencies who politicize intelligence. They're not going to tell us the truth, especially about their favored folks, the favored party. We saw that in Russiagate. We're seeing it today. The, the intelligence and investigative agencies are in the tank for on, on a partisan basis for, for the Democrats. The second thing we have is we have a partisan press who's not going to tell us. We can't depend on to tell us the truth. So that's two agencies, two groups of, of institutions we cannot depend on. The third one is the presidency itself. In this case, we have a president who, by all evidence that's emergence, seems like, and I'll say that seems like by, in my view, a preponderance of evidence, if not not beyond a reasonable doubt, but by a preponderance, certainly looks like he's beholden to our biggest enemy, uh, the Chinese, and he's getting paid for it. And his son certainly was uh, uh, influenced by the Chinese. Our major, major geopolitical rival, our major economic rival, uh, especially now that, that there's going to be a war on who's got the reserve or default currency in the world, which China's going to take from us. So we have all that. So when you ask me what I keeps me up at night, it's those three factors together. You know, we, we don't get the truth from the media. They, they try to politicize it as much as possible. And if you have a Democratic president in there, they're going to see no evil, hear no evil. Oh, everything's just fine. Then you have these intelligence agencies that have proven, whether it's through Hillary Clinton's uh, Uranium One sales to uh, her her computers uh, being bleach bit, uh, you have that. You have intel uh, that. You have RussiaGate altogether, where the FBI is consorting with commun with Russian agents. Everybody who did the <laughs> everything the was Russian- from Russian spies. Everything That's that right. the Democrats brought up to accuse Donald Trump of being a Russian spy. It was just right. Igor Denchenko. Victoria, Igor <laughs> Denchenko was the main prime source. He's a Russian spy. He's a Russian we know spy. that. <laughs> okay. 
Christopher Steele, his main client is Oleg Deripaska, the aluminum oligarch who's like this with Vladimir Putin. I can go on and on. The other folks were all connected to Russia, too. But we have a president being accused of Russian collusion with a group of Russian agents. There's no doubt about it. Charles Dolan, um, the American, was known uh, and, and has bragged about being the Russian's PR agent in the capital. He had a contract. So everybody's a Russian agent. M many, many of them admitted. But does the do the but press did, tell us did, this? Didn't he didn't he say, you know, Charles Dolan, I think he was a legit um, person representative of Russia. He was a registered right. foreign agent. Right. So he was right. legally allowed to do that. But what he did do was he got in touch with uh uh, Danchenko and said in his own paperwork that he knew Danchenko was a spy. Well, right. He knew he was a spy. And of course, although Dolan's a legit guy, uh, Danchenko and Steele could not say that some of this stuff we put in our fake dossier came from Dolan because that doesn't sound right. And then they tried to shove it off on this guy, Sergey Million, and make it look like some of this information came from Russia. It was coming from Charles Dolan, who's not only connected to Russia, but is also Hillary's guy and has been since 1990. So you have this happening. Now you take that, uh, all this background we're talking about, now you take it to the present tense. Um, what is it that think about all the various things that are occurring that we're not being told about? What about as for the last two years, we know, of course, that Putin masked on the border and Biden gave him a, an engraved uh, invitation. invitation. To but now let's go to the South China Sea. Man. Now he's allowing China to do whatever it wants in the South China Sea with absolutely no pushback. But we don't hear about it. The normal person who's going to work and, and watching a little TV at night to try to catch up on the news never hears about what's happening in that part of the world that we're allowing China to take over and encircling Taiwan. Now, how does this affect you and me and the every everybody out here who's listened to your podcast? 90%, I'll say that, 90% of our most advanced chips, the most important uh, computer chips we have, are manufactured out of Taiwan. Uh, if we lose Taiwan, we lose our most valuable artificial intelligence, our most valuable military secrets, our most advanced manufacturing chips, our intellectual property that makes America so strong is tied up with those chips from Taiwan. Now they take over that island, the Chinese, as they are doing now. If they take that over, we might as well kiss our country goodbye. Right now, we have our biggest terrorist enemies consorting with China. Is Biden doing anything about it? No, he's completely abandoned any Middle East strategy that now allows these people vulnerable to be part of this um, uh, consortium led by China. So we have that. So you put it all together, and, uh, and now China is now imposing its currencies on these people that it is helping. I think Russia is going to be involved other people, Iran. So so on every front, oh, oh and of course, I, I need not mention the spy balloon that is so big that amateur photographers could see it. Uh, <laughs> well, you and, know what? And, that one of the, our engineer, uh, editor, and extraordinary podcaster himself, Kenny. 
took photos and video of that Chinese balloon getting blown up or just seconds after. It's crazy because he, he lives in South Carolina. So crazy. And it's anyway. easy to it's easy to do. And what would have happened if these amateur photographers had not raised uh, uh, any ruckus over this? I'm not so sure we would have been told. And I'm not so Don't sure know. that balloon would have been shot down. Biden had to shoot it down. Now, of course, he's not going to do it over uh, a part of Canada or Montana where there might he might hit a couple of cows, uh, you know, with the debris. Oh, no. Oh, no. He had to let them f finish their job and photograph every military installation around. Uh, so this thing is not just about who who wins, who gets the votes and who gets to pick the next postmaster, as used to be the stakes when, uh, you know, James Madison was running for president, who gets to pick the post office of people. No, uh, this is really very important to all of us who are listening to this. It has to do with our financial future. It has to do with our just our ability to live our lives. Um, and 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 soon I don't want to li uh, leave our country to my grandson with this sort of uh, with this sort of geopolitical uh, weakness we have. We have basically mm -hmm. taken all the world's countries, all 100 something or other of them, and like a deck of cards, just thrown it up in the air. And for whatever reason, the Democrats have decided that, and maybe it's the globalists, uh, you know, all their buddies around, um, have decided that it's time to reorganize the quote unquote world order. Um, and what that means in some form or fashion, you alluded to it, I believe, when you talked about the financial crisis that we are in, and you're in San Francisco, you see the empty office buildings, you know that the tech industry is going to riff more employees in the future. You know that there are hot and cold running bums around San Francisco smoking crack and getting addicted to things and ruining lives. You've seen it all. And I cannot help but wonder that one of the first order of magnitude problems as a result of this uh, benign neglect of the of our country, that is the apparently the cause celeb of the Biden administration is, okay, we need to get on a digital currency. So let's see, let's find somebody. And this is just going to sound weird because I've just come out of all those other things. It's not a uh, conclusion based on what I've just stated. It's just an observation of mine that, you know, we have another, uh, we have another economic crisis. We have another bank crisis. And one of the reasons we have a bank crisis is because the um, cryptocurrency, you know, of which these banks were heavily rely uh, reliant, um, has just gone in the tank. Well, why? Well, because Sam Bankman-Fried decided that he was going to run a an op, uh, a uh, you know, scam. And what did he do with all the money? He gave it all to Democrats. There might be a couple of Republicans in there. So don't both sideism uh, with me, um, all you viewers and listeners out there. It was almost exclusively to Democrats. They took their money and then he declared bankruptcy. And now we're rushing toward a digital currency because, you know, can't rely on cryptocurrencies because cryptocurrencies aren't very, you know, they're just not safe. See what happened to Sam Bankman-Fried who gave all of his money to Democrats? I cannot help but wonder if I'm in some sort of play and I'm and I'm supposed to be, you know, a person who's one of the actors in it. I, I It's just astonishing to me. What do you think about that? 
There's an end well, game here. What is it? Well, look. At, well, here's what you said. You said a couple things. You talked about globalism. To me, globalism is just another name for getting graft from from or with people in other countries. Hmm. Uh, look at what happened to cause our present inflation. Because of our sudden hockey stick inflation, which, by the way, uh, the people in charge would not acknowledge it was transitory inflation because they wanted to help Biden. So they told us a false story that it was transitory. Right. Smart people knew otherwise, but the general public did not. So it's not right. transitory. Well, and it's, rather just, than take- it's not hard to figure out that if you're spending $10 trillion in two years, you're going to it's going to inflate the currency. It just it's just that simple. Well, let me give you another aspect. You not only are spending money, let's take the Inflation Reduction Act, so-called oxymoronically. <laughs> the you Inflation the Reduction Act, is, is, as, as anyone will tell you that's honest on the Democratic side, this was really about green energy handouts. So most of that money is going to uh, little piggies on K Street that are have all these schemes to help our climate. And of course, none of it's going to help our climate. That, that's been proven. You can't do anything about it, even if you think it's a crisis. But so you have that. So you, you have a, a lot of money going that way. Then you have Biden trying to do something for the environmentalists who are giving him a ton of money. OK. And one of the things you do is, OK, we can't really stop people from using fossil fuel, but boy, we can make it more expensive. It was a decided. Um, and that's capitalism. Strategy <laughs> to make. Yeah. To make it more expensive. <laughs> capitalism by stopping drilling for oil. So what happens? Immediately, we go from having an abundance of fossil fuel to not enough. Everything we wear, eat, or sleep with is made of fossil fuel or uh, is either manufactured with it or is part of it. Like what I'm wearing right now is made out of fossil fuel. Um, And uh, our our, our, um, uh, fertilizer is fossil fuel. And so forth and so on. So with one stroke of the pen, stopping leasing, we have now increased the cost of so many goods, not just gas at the pump, which it it does, but all goods. Now we have the Inflation Reduction Act, which makes for inflation, and we're off to the races. Then what happens is Silicon Valley Bank is holding, like many outfits, these low interest rate um, bonds. Well, guess what? All of a sudden, with inflation, those bonds have now not become safe anymore. You have decreased their value tremendously with hockey stick inflation, who no one would, any reasonable president would not have caused that. But this happened, and now we have destabilized our banks. Now we're pouring money into that. We have deficits. We're going to have to increase taxes. We increase taxes. Uh, We're all going to hit. We're already being taxed with the most cruel tax of all, the inflation tax. Our 401ks are going down and our costs are going up. So we put all this together, Victoria, and a lot of it become, uh, is the result of that uh, holy, unholy alliance of the press, of our intelligence and investigative agencies, and of the executive branch itself. So you put all these things together. Now, how much influence does China have over us? Tremendous amounts. We know that the <laughs> big paying off the president, <laughs> the president. Yeah. So, this, so Victoria, this thing comes out about three million dollars going through um, 
Robert, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on his last name right now. It'll come to me. Yeah, the three million dollars uh, from FE. What is it? Uh, uh, FE. What was Rob, the Rob name Walker from three from CEFC. Oh, CEFC. And CEFC right. was was Hunter and James Biden's big uh, cash cow. And uh, this FBI agent that was just indicted, McGonagall, was working for CEFC as an FBI agent. So their tendrils are, are all over the place. And and now we have money not going just to Hunter or not just to James. So at least up until this point, you can say, well, they're peddling their name. But boy, there's no connection to Joe. Well, this latest uh, tranche of payoffs of three million bucks clearly was intended for Joe Biden's family, not, not for people who could be working for CEFC. This money's being spread out around Joe Biden's family. Um, so it really looks like game, set and match for Joe Biden corruption. Uh, and only if you want to see it. Only if the feds want to see it. Only if the feds want to see it. And then and of course, that's not going to be seen as long as the press keeps mum and there's no political pressure there. So there's no political pressure to go after any of this stuff. And um, uh, and, and so we have our situation that, that is. And so what happens? What, what does the press do for us? They immediately start start talking about Trump, 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 Trump. And all of a sudden, the shiny object is over there. Look at Trump. Don't look at Biden corruption. So uh, it, it's no way to run a democracy. We depend upon good information and hopefully... In our messy democracy, we will ultimately do the right thing, but you have to have the right information. Let's talk about your book, uh, The Mysteries of Watergate. Mysteries of Watergate. Uh, and because this comes into play here, the first order effects of Watergate were to force out a president and change the results of an overwhelmingly an overwhelmingly popular president in the in election, election of a president, and 49 states out of 50. You've never seen that. Many people have never seen that in their lifetimes. That is how popular Richard Nixon was. And for whatever reason, uh, the Democrats wanted him out. Now, that's not really the backstory. Of course, the Democrats don't want the Republicans to win every election. That's not something new. What was new is what you found in your looking into your investigation and living through Watergate. Talk about that, your relationship with Mark Felt, otherwise known as Deep, Deep Throat. Well, I've written two books, Victoria. The first, Postgate, is about how the Post covered up Watergate and changed everything. The second, The Mysteries of Watergate, is just a step-by-step -step sequel so that the average reader can tell what happened step-by-step-by-step. Oh, and how the Post was able to cover it up. But here's the deal. I was an assistant U.S. attorney when all of this happened. Uh, I got to meet Charles Bates, who was Mark Felt's assistant, who got shoved out to San Francisco because they thought he was deep throat. Uh, but I began looking at this very closely because I was a young prosecutor. I was very interested in it. And I became convinced that Richard Nixon had to go. I mean, he had obstructed justice. I went along with the Post stuff. At the same time, uh, I was fascinated by Deep Throat and who it was. So by 1976, I believed I had put all the clues together and I could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Deep Throat was Mark Felt. I forgot all about it until 
uh, 30 years later when my daughter and her friends are in my dining room and uh, I find out that I'm talking to, to Mark Felt's grandson and immediately rush up to Santa Rosa to try to talk him into admitting it. But in the course of this and in the course of dealing with the Post, I got curious about the Post's reactions to some of my thoughts as I researched Watergate and researched again 25 years later what had happened. I now realize that the Post had pulled punches on certain things and maybe not pulled punches that they had just not reported things and maybe they'd missed them in good faith. That's well, that's the that's the most powerful thing about the press. They choose the stories they're going to tell and then they show and they choose the details that they're willing to share. Uh, they don't always know everything, but it is remarkable uh, the, that they can omit things. And that's a bigger story than the ones, the stories they're telling. Well, and so here's what I found out, uh, Victoria. I originally thought that the Post had missed this story innocently and negligently, that certain things had come, about, come out later um, and so forth. But I began to talk to the Post about these things. Uh, Woodward, for example, I talked to about, and you would think uh, I was talking about a nuclear bomb going off because it frightened them. And I thought, what what is their, what is their motive in trying to shut me up about this stuff and not have me talk about it? And I go through it in my book, Postgate. Well, finally, I get so curious that I start researching maybe this stuff that I have learned through subsequent documentation, maybe this stuff was there all along uh, in the laps of the post. Well, by gosh, I go back and I spend, I spend 10 years of my life doing this uh, in, in my spare time. And sure enough, I come up with a very, very solid case that the post knew all of these things from day one, from day one. Well, they you have knew to, t you got to tell a little bit about what that story was because people right. who are paying attention to the news today will go, oh, it sounds so familiar. Right. So the very first day after the Watergate burglary on June 17, 1972, the Post reported it with seeming detail, but they left out some details. For example, if they would have told the public where the burglars were setting up their camera equipment, it would have told us what the target of the burglary was. The target of the burglary was basically uh, a joint Democratic and CIA operation, not operation, but the Democrats were referring their out-of-towners to the girls down the, down the street, and the CIA was snooping on them. The CIA has, had been uh, enlisting the, the ladies down the street to help them tape these folks. Uh, and so it was a CIA operation. The Democrats just happened to be referring uh, out-of-town men into it. And that is what they were listening to at the time. Uh, the Post knew this right away. And, and, and the CIA and the FBI thought that this was a botched CIA operation, as it was to some degree. Now, uh, but the Post refrained from saying that. Now, uh, they protected the CIA but mainly for the purpose of protecting the Democrats, because they were the Post shared a general counsel with the DNC. They were close to the DNC. They didn't want it to be known that the DNC was sending its out-of-towners down the street. Fairly, I mean, really 
fairly innocuous wrong. It wasn't a terrible thing, uh, but it would have been shameful. It would have been a scandal, a mini scandal for the DNC. So they hushed it up. The CIA started working with the Post to hush up the CIA's involvement, which was so apparent. And the Post knew it. They had all the facts that would show that this was the CIA was deeply, deeply involved and that uh, James McCord and Howard Hunt very clearly were undercover CIA uh, uh, agents. Now, all of this is very important in determining whether Richard Nixon and his inner circle were guilty. The Post made them look like they knew everything and were covering it up. <laughs> the irony of it is the Post knew everything and they were covering it up. So Nixon uh, and the tape show this was really and his inner circle were at a loss. They were scratching their heads. Who did this? They can't figure out who ordered the burglary. They never could. They always thought that maybe John Mitchell did, the attorney general, maybe it was somebody else. Everybody denied it. They were in the dark. So now let me give you one incident here, uh, Victoria, for your viewers that I talk about in the book that the Post didn't talk about. When the burglars were caught, they were told to assume the position, hands against the wall, so forth and so on, and they were going to pat them down. Well, one of the burglars reached into his suit pocket. They're all wearing suits, which is kind of interesting. All had rubber gloves on. One of them reaches into his pocket. The arresting officer says, get your hand out of there. What are you doing? He thought he might be going for a weapon. He jumps on him, grabs his arm, gets in a wrestling match. He almost had to break his arm. And he finds that the burglar had a little key, a little desk key in his hand. And finally, he got the desk key. And it wasn't for several days that the FBI, after checking all the desks, found out it was for the desk of the secretary who was referring the gentleman down the street and had her information in her desk. That's where the camera clamps were on that desk. That's what the key would have unlocked. Uh, the Post knew all this. So so Jeff Schaefer writes about this in his book as well about Watergate, which and we featured him uh, quite a bit at the 50th anniversary of Watergate. And so let's just be real clear. A call girl operation was being run out of the DNC. And one of the call girls ostensibly was uh, uh, John Dean's soon to be wife, whom he married so she couldn't testify at all. Um, which I, I mean, I just sort of assume that that's one of the reasons they got married. I'm sure she was a hot, hot babe. Don't get me wrong. And apparently she put out. So, so anyway, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but not, no, not sorry. However, so they're running a, they're running a call girl operation and the CIA is spying because they want blackmail material, right? Well, let me, let me just do it, say it the way I would. It's a call girl referral operation. The call girl operation was going on without the referrals from the DNC, number one. Okay. You're number, two, number two, there was a lawsuit alleging libel suggesting that Maureen Dean was a call girl. I stay away from that. I stay away from that. And it is enough for our purposes to know that the madam who was running the call girl operation was a friend of Maureen Dean's. And Wasn't she a roommate? Earlier, yes. And and then when John was out of town, she would stay with her. Uh, so she knew the call girl, madam, very well. And she was at, I, we have pictures in Mysteries of Watergate of them together at her wedding, at, at John and Maureen's wedding. She was there. So 
and the newspaper article that sparked the second break-in, there was already one break-in that was successful. The second break-in was spurred by an article in the Star News, Washington Star News, that talked about a cargo operation involving, quote, one lawyer at the White House, unquote. So I think it was more John Dean worried about whether he was on a list rather than whether his girlfriend was. So he knew the madam and so forth. So I think he wanted to know, at least this is the inference, it's not in stone. The inference is that he was most likely interested in going in the second time to find out what they had on him. Uh, and so uh, so the Maureen thing is very, very... Um, Cloudy. Yeah, yeah, you can draw. Well, you can you can draw your inferences. But I'm just not going to do it right. uh, because no I just don't. I, I just don't like to do that to any woman. Okay. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, of course. I I, 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 I went to Notre I'll Dame. I'll do that for you. I went to I went to Notre Dame. I don't like doing anything to any uh, lady uh, uh, and so forth. But that having been said, there is a real connection there. So John Dean had an interest. The CIA had an interest in making sure. Not only that it continued its call girl taping operation, which is very much for extortion purposes, as well as supposedly for mind control purposes. They wanted that to continue. And they also, as part of this, wanted seeming presidential authorization for their taping program. The taping program had been illegal up until Watergate. If they got seeming presidential authorization for what they did, it now became legal as a legal intelligence operation. So they were looking for a patina of presidential authorization here, get out of jail card free and so forth. And that worked to some degree. So it's a complicated story, but one in which both the lower level White House uh, aides, very low level, combined with the CIA to go in there each for their own individual purposes. And uh, it was mainly a CIA operation, though. That's the main aspect of this thing. And the CIA got away with it. It got away with so many things since that time, uh, and they're still doing it. Um, so, uh, and what we find is there's developed over the years this partisan connection. You would think the CIA would be just as interested in... Uh, dealing with the Republicans is the Democrats, it's much easier for them to deal with the Republicans who are not as uh, imbued with partisanship here in the intelligence agency. Republicans tend to uh, support intelligence agencies. They're not a problem. Uh, the Democrats demand a little more fealty, and they get it. Look at, what, look at Russiagate. Look at them protecting Hillary Clinton when she sells uh, our uranium uh one, uh, 20% of our uranium stock goes to Russia. Uh, they arrest 10 Russian spies at that time that know all about Hillary. However, within a few days before, while our heads are still spinning, they get shipped off to Russia for nobodies. It's almost like trading Steph Curry and LeBron James for a minor leaguer. That's what we did. We, 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 we didn't even try to squeeze these 10 Russian spies we had. Why? Because when we squeezed them, we would find out about Hillary. Wow. So they, they get over immediately in 2010, get sent to Russia, and they're, they're covering up for Hillary. And 
that's just one example of how the CIA and the partisan left work together. Um, and of course, there's no investigative reporter that gets close to reporting this, whereas the facts were pretty well could have been found out. And as a result of the Watergate so-called investigative journalism, <clears throat> it went directly to public policy and has resulted in decision-making that we still suffer from today because it was born of bad intel. Talk about that. Well, we have all sorts of um, uh, bad intel on so many different levels. We have what I would call domestic intel, which is our partisan press. And then we have the intel from our agencies. So uh, once again, uh, Russiagate's a great example of bad intel. Um, now, you talk about reporting, for instance, reporting, I'll give you one example, and this is, you have reporting on climate change. If we had reporters that were not in the tank, we would have a nice two-sided discussion of what the issues are, or it might be five-sided, is what was really going on with our climate. And we would realize that the main climate hypothesis is unproven, and we should be following whether or not there is any proof of it. That is to say that the modest effect that you can um, calculate on paper for carbon dioxide is very modest. The hypothesis is that there's all this feedback that makes the warming amplified. Well, there's no proof of the amplification. Uh, and in fact, it could be negative amplification as much as positive amplification. But we are now spending trillions on something that probably is not a problem at all. But Trillions everybody's getting rich. And we're destroying, <laughs> we're now destroying whales with windmills in the ocean, but the windmills on the land, uh, as well as the ocean, are probably killing up to a million birds a year now. Uh, and that's just supposedly cool. We're, 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 um, Drilling, I guess drilling isn't the word, mining for all these rare earth metals around the world. And we're creating such havoc in our soil. One automobile battery of an EV causes uh, about 250 to 500 tons of soil to be disrupted, leaving pools of waste behind. Now, each EV we, we uh, make... Uh, is going to cause environmental destruction. But nobody thinks about that. Nobody thinks about the cost. Nobody thinks about the silly things we're doing here. Nobody thinks now, about where they're going to plug them in and where that energy comes from. Yeah. And the, and the, and the uh, idea is that somehow you see this nice little Tesla going down the street and saying, isn't that clean? Well, it's getting its power from a coal plant down the way. And and as, and as rare earth minerals get harder and harder to mine, we need, we need more uh, carbon dioxide from the mining machinery to emit because it's getting harder and harder to get copper, for example. We're spending more and more energy getting the copper, getting the, uh, the other uh, manganese and so forth. So what we're doing is we're creating more and more pollution so that it's not even clear that you're saving anything from these automobiles. Uh, and it's silly. And we're doing all this stuff. And now what, what's going to happen if we have... Let me give you one thing, Victoria. You talk about what keeps me up at night. 
the pulse, a magnetic pulse bomb is very accessible to just about anybody in the world. Um, if anyone wanted to disable us right now, all of our electrical grid is run by computers. It's no longer, um, you know, the, the mechanical uh, uh, deal that we used to have. They're all computers that uh, deal th with these things. You put a magnetic pulse bomb out and you've disabled our electrical grid. Now, that's fine, not fine, but it's manageable if we all have fossil fuel in our tanks, fossil fuel that heats our house, that we have gas, so forth, gas stoves. We can all get by. Gas generators, hospitals can go on it. But what happens if everything is, you know, based upon a grid that is fed by uh, uh, windmills and uh, so forth and so on? Solar panels uh, made in China. And, and, and solar panels. <laughs> and now you have a pulse bomb. Now what you're doing is our, our, our freeways are going to be a parking lot with electric vehicles just sitting there. Now, what do we do? You can disable our whole country with a pulse bomb if you have nothing but electric vehicles. Electric vehicles are really a, a bad idea. Um, uh, I love Teslas. They're awesome. But I get this. I understand this. And that Chinese balloon could have held a tactical nuclear weapon to drop in some form. You don't even have to have a, a weapon system to to send it. You could just do you could you could make sure that it exploded and ruin the electrical grid. That's how it's done from above. It's well, right. silly. And now go back to Bill Clinton's time, right before he left office through Ron Brown and Graft. They they sold to China our missile guidance system. That I think it was the Loral Company that had the missile guidance system. That's a huge, huge technological military secret. Now we've given it to the Chinese. Now you combine that with the spy balloon saying exactly where these facilities are and where they need to program their missile to. Now they have intimate knowledge of our system so that you calculate things on your missile guidance system and you can hit that thing right on the button now that we've had the spy balloon. So you combine what Clinton did in, in whatever it is, 2000 in 1998 or whenever it is, and you combine that with today, Biden allowing the spy balloon over, and you've got a recipe for disaster. They can wipe out our best military installations in a heartbeat. So when did, just veering back to the FBI and CIA, when did they get into the business? When did the FBI get into the business of being a intelligence agency versus an investigative police agency? And what, were, what was the fallout of that? Well, first of all, my client, Mark Felt, and actually my father, uh, both had worked in intelligence for the FBI. My father quit to marry my mother, and so he didn't pursue his FBI career. Mark Felt did. So the FBI always had some intelligence responsibility within the United States, and they could go abroad a bit, but mainly that was CIA territory. But where things really changed was in 2001 with 9-11. Uh, President Bush calls Mueller into his office and says he wants him to start orienting the FBI to be an intelligence agency and not mainly an investigative agency. And to Mueller's credit, he complied with that. So the FBI now got into the intelligence business. Uh, and that's in, in a big way. It had always had intelligence capabilities. Uh, it was not its main uh, 
item of business. Well, now it and goes so, after targets. It targets people and then looks for crimes. I mean, as if they're Al Qaeda terrorists or something. Well, now you've hit your you've hit the thing on the button. The CIA can't prosecute anybody, so it doesn't have a motive to use intelligence to prosecute people. The FBI, as a result of 9-11, we tore down the walls between intelligence and investigation. So what you do is you open up a counterintelligence investigation, which doesn't need probable cause. In that counterintelligence investigation, you then develop evidence of a crime you now just give that evidence to your criminal side and you prosecute somebody. So when James Comey is asked about the Russiagate investigation, that's a counterintelligence investigation which needs very little predication because you don't want to have to have tremendous evidence to investigate what Russia and China are doing. You can just have a scintilla. So they open up a counterintelligence investigation then they're looking for, they're not really looking for intelligence on Trump. They're looking to get Trump. So they're using intelligence powers to get criminal inf information, which should only be a pursuit on a probable cause basis. So they use that now. Once you have a partisan FBI, you now have them using intelligence powers for investigative and criminal prosecution purposes. So you become a police state if you abuse those powers. The FBI now works with the CIA, and now we're becoming a police state. That's the terrible thing. Remember, James Comey appears before Congress, and if you listen to him testify, you would think he had a criminal case open on Trump. He didn't have a criminal case open on Trump. When Mueller was given the special counsel mantle, there was no criminal <laughs> case yet open. It was only opened after Mueller got there, which is... Bass Ackwards. Right. Uh, you know, and who did that? Who did that? Uh, uh, Rosenstein. Well, well, that Rod was Rosenstein. Rosenstein. Rod Rosenstein was so upset that, that people like McCabe and Comey were coming after him and, and badgering him that to get them off of his back and sustain his wonderful reputation, he then was coerced into starting this Mueller investigation. Now Mueller starts an investigation and pretty soon people say, we don't have a crime yet. Where's our crime? They didn't have one. And, and, and if you look at the Justice Department regulations, you're not supposed to have a special counsel investigation unless you have a crime. OK, and the crime then to create a conflict. So as soon as they opened the investigation, they realized that they didn't have a crime. And so then they opened one up on the theory that maybe by firing Comey, Trump was obstructing justice, even though you think he had authority to fire his FBI guy which he did. But but my point is that clearly the group was using intelligence powers to try to get evidence of a crime on their sitting president. Think about that one, on their sitting president. Uh, so we have a counterintelligence agency, which is supposed to be run by the president. In other words, all counterintelligence investigations are those of the commander in chief. You have a wall between the president on investigative and criminal matters where he's not supposed to interfere, but on in counterintelligence, the president should be knowing everything. So Comey doesn't tell the president about an investigation that Trump is supposed to be in charge of. He decides he doesn't need to tell his own president that he's investigating the president. Mm -hmm. So 
How about him uh, trying have, to bribe the president the first time or just extort the president in some form well, he's or extorting fashion. the president with yeah. this all this being prostitute stuff and trying to get control of Trump without telling Trump, by the way, Mr. President, I've got to advise you that you're in charge of this investigation and you should be making me tell you everything. But uh, but tr- which Trump can do. He's not interfering if it's a counterintelligence investigation. He's not interfering improperly. And so this whole thing was an intelligence agency out of control and uh, acting against its own commander in chief. So think about that. one. He's supposed to be running counterintelligence and they're out to get him uh, and to try to trap him into a criminal uh, uh Enterprise? No, uh, it, it, it's really very sad, and we have an out. And now, meanwhile, the press should know this, the media should know this, but but you know, everybody's yeah. brain dead. I mean, I can sit here in my living room. Yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> and I can yell my head off, but I don't think uh, MSNBC or CBN is going to be interested in what I have to say. Okay, so Mark felt he yeah. was deep throat. And you worked right. with him. You are the, I think you're the first person to say out loud that he was deep throat. Um, you know, I knew it. I knew it, Victoria, before. And I had to convince Mark to admit to me that he was. I knew he was deep throat. Tell so us I that story. That's so crazy. You went to his house, yeah. right? Right. Well, what happened is because I was so interested in this, I was a bachelor in San Francisco, and whenever I had a spare moment, I'd go to a coffee shop with my copy of All the President's Men. If it was after five o'clock, I would go to a bar and have a beer and read All the President's Men, because I was so fascinating about putting the clues together, so fascinated. By 1976, I had everything I needed to know. I had proven this thing seven times over, didn't think anybody would care what a young guy in San Francisco thought, so I forgot about it. Um, and went about my business, got married, had kids. And now I've got a wonderful daughter that goes to Stanford and she's got her friends coming over uh, to be fed. Everybody's running out of their meal cards. They've, they've <laughs> overindulged. The end of the month. Their, yeah, end of the month. They, they, their meal cards are down to nothing. They spent a little bit too much on beer at the local place. So Jan's cooking up a big feast and I've got the beer and wine ready for him and the kids come over. We're having a blast. We sit down to dinner. A bunch of them had been to Brazil for the semester abroad. And so I thought that and they had just come back. And this is almost like a reunion. Some of the folks hadn't seen each other since they'd been abroad. They all took off at the same time. So uh, and they're supposed to do that for one quarter a year. So they did their one quarter. They come back. And I'm telling stories about my father who was in Brazil and was an undercover agent and about some of the slip ups he made where he was easily identified by the Germans, you know, and he was a really he was a Notre Dame basketball jock pretending to be a leather importer. And the Germans apparently knew who he was the moment he stepped off the boat. So I was telling stories about this. And this young man who I was good friends with across the table said, well, you know, Big John, did you know my grandfather was in the FBI? I said, no, no. He said, maybe your father knew my grandfather. You're both in counterintelligence and looking for German spies. I said, well, sure. What's his name? My dad used to talk all about all the people he dealt with in, in the bureau. He said, well, his name's Mark Felt. <laughs> his name's Mark Felt. Did your and mouth he, just fall he, open? And he, he, he went pretty, he was pretty high up in the FBI. I said, <laughs> I said, Nick, 
I know who your grandfather is. And yes, I know he was pretty high up. And by the way, did you know he was deep throat? And he said, what? He's always denied it. He always told the family that he wasn't deep throat and he was pretty serious about it. I said, Nick, he's deep throat. I know he is. Let me come up because I think I can push his buttons. I think I understand his psyche and why he's not telling anybody. Let me come up and visit him and I'm sure I can get him to admit it. So he calls up a couple days later and says, oh, mom's really excited. She, she was wondering about this and he's always denied it. But boy, will you come up and see him? So I came up and, and saw him. And what I did, Victoria, is I knew his psyche. And so I said, because I knew that what he cared about was real law enforcement guys, would they think what he did was wrong? The real law enforcement guys, because he's an FBI guy and so forth. So I said to him, Nick, or when I said, to, I, I met Mark uh, and Joan introduced him. This is John O'Connor. He's our friend, so forth and so on. I said, Mark, listen. So I qualified myself. I said, I was an assistant U.S. attorney, Mark. And I said, my dad was an FBI agent. My dad's partner, Bill Ruckel's house, was head of the FBI for a while. And I think he was your boss for a few weeks. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I said, my good, my good friend is Bob Mueller, who I was in the U.S. attorney's office with. And I said, and of course, he was head of the FBI. Oh, yeah, 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 Bob. Yeah, 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 Bob. Uh, and, and when I was an assistant U.S. attorney, Mark, we thought this guy... Deep Throat was a wonderful guy. Now, Mark, his knuckles turn white. He goes like this when I mention Deep Throat. And then I say, but Mark, and he's just really worried about this. And I said, Mark, all the young prosecutors love Deep Throat because they thought he made our system clean and pure. He was trying to keep the justice system pure when he did what he did. What did he do? Okay, just let's pause here for a second. Because some, some people... He told the Washington Post, Bob Woodward, whom he'd known deep throat, Mark Felt had known Woodward for years. And he, and he goes to Woodward and Woodward opens up his mouth like the little bird in the nest and receives what it is he's saying. What is it that he's saying? Well, all Mark wanted to do was make sure that his investigation was not unduly circumscribed. In other words, he thought there were crimes outside the burglary, which might lead one to the White House. And, and others, it might connect the burglary to the White House. He wanted to follow investigative leads, which, by the way, Victoria, would not have worked. But Mark thought they might. And it's an investigative hypothesis. If a Was dirty it a political one? Came, right, exactly. There were political dirty tricks that Nixon was responsible for, but they were mine. They were frat boy stuff, you know, ordering pizzas, sure. stealing shoes from the Democrats. So that 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 went up to the White House, at least Nixon's aides, to Nixon's lawyer and Nixon's aide, Dwight Chapin. Now, Mark thought that if he was allowed to investigate that, he might find out whether or not the burglary was connected to the White House. It was not connected to the White House, that is to say the upper reaches of it, but he thought it might. So he went to Woodward to try to get uh, the public aware that they needed the investigation to stay open and not be circumscribed. So he's looking for polit political pressure uh, given by the media in order to keep his agency pure. He did not want to, and I've got the documents, the FBI documents. 
he was worried about somebody later accusing the FBI of a whitewash. Now, think about that if we had that FBI today who would not want a whitewash. Mark was worried that it would look like he was politically keeping his hands off of this investigation for political purposes. These guys didn't want to be politicized. So his his motive was not to politicize the investigation, but to keep it free of political influence, because after all, the Republicans were in the White House and it would look like they were constraining and they were constraining through the Department of Justice, the investigation. So he was keeping he was nonpartisan. He was keeping this thing pure. Now, what he didn't realize was how much of an explosion would come from this and also what power he would give to the post to then carry the ball in a very dishonest way, which they were already doing, by the way, but carried the ball forward in a dishonest way. But he did help the post, became a regular, his, he never gave out confidential information, but he would try to guide Woodward to go the right places. Uh-huh. So he wanted to make sure that Woodward was not saying things that were false. And yet Woodward uh, was. Yes. Right? And let me give you a good example of this. Those people who are familiar with the book or the movie will know that the most dramatic part of it is when Deep Throat comes into the garage, lips quivering, saying, our lives are in danger and we're being wiretapped. Okay. That was about the CIA. Mark was getting into the CIA and was telling Woodward the CIA is so worried about getting caught that they're threatening lives. Now, I go through this in my book. They actually, I believe, poisoned one person and, and may have poisoned a second person and were threatening a third person. So so Mark was concerned about that. But, Victoria, did we get one word about this in the uh, reporting at the time? Not one word. Nothing. That now, is a mind-blowingly blockbuster story. It was the dog that didn't bark. I mean, that is just correct. astonishing. And they never correct. said any. That is the story of Watergate. CIA spying, and they're trying to get this blackmail material on people, especially, and the Democrats don't want it. And so the Washington Post teams up with the Democrats and, and just taps down on that and then goes, look at the shiny object over here. Isn't that Richard Nixon guy a really bad man? You just said it. The dog that didn't bark. When you go now. They put this now after after Nixon's toast and they write their book, then they put in this episode and they put it in the movie because it's so dramatic. But nobody and then they sort of soft soap it so that if you're you're not quite sure what Deep Throat was warning them about. But it, boy, it, it seemed real dramatic. And they sort of downplay the fact that it was to cover up the CIA. But you're right. It's the dog. I didn't even mention didn't it. Who's, who's going to kill us? Who's that guy? Who, who's, who, who, why would they kill us for talking about this other story? No, they, they want to tamp down the idea that the CIA has anything to do with this. And when you've got your burglars who are all CIA guys and you've got the heads of them. And the fascinating thing about what you wrote about in your book, The Mysteries of Watergate, was that there was, of course, a, a, a shell organization for which these guys worked. And it was all known. It was all known. And it never made, really made the light of day in the pages of the Washington Post with context. That's right. And it would have helped our country immeasurably if we really said who was really responsible for this. It was an out-of-control uh, agency. Um, 
The burglary had nothing to do with the campaign. Uh, it had to do now. John Dean writes a book called Blind Ambition in which he talks about his blind ambition to develop an intelligence portfolio. Well, guess what? Guess what Watergate was? It was a way for him. I think Howard Hunt probably talked him into it, the fact that he could get some girly dirt on the Democrats. John Dean would sign off on that for his own ambitious political purposes, not for the campaign. So we had this strange combination of a young guy who Nixon had never met, by the way, never met John Dean in, before Watergate. Until the end, when Dean started advising him, to now tell Dean him he had a cancer advising. on the presidency, so he could go. And this is already after he decided he had already turned state's evidence and became an, a, a source, and and uh, he got uh, immunity. And then he goes to the Oval right. Office and tells the story. Right, and not only that, Victoria, that the only act of obstruction they could prove on Nixon beyond a doubt was the one that Dean foolishly told him to do, which was to try to interfere with the Mexican money trail tell the CIA to call the FBI off on the Mexican money trail uh, investigation, which was nothing. It was a detail. It was so silly that Dean would do this. But Dean was worried about John Dean. He wasn't worried about anybody else. So Nixon went along with that. It was, and, and the reason Nixon went along with it is he was afraid the Mexican money trail would uncover a political donor who was a, an ostensible Democrat, but had given to the Republicans. So Nixon didn't want this guy to be uncovered. He wasn't Nixon had no idea what had happened in Watergate, uh, but Dean talked him into this one foolish venture. Nixon's on tape agreeing to it. So that brings him down. And, and that's because the public, though, the pro post had already let everybody know that the Republicans were the White House was really behind the burglary. They weren't. But the post led everybody to believe that the higher reaches were. So that was enough to bring Nixon down, a popularly elected president. And we're off to the races at that point. And, so and that, that is a, the result of that investigation, the, the, the investigative journalism, which occurred here, now everybody is doing it. Gotcha journalism became the norm. And everyone wanted their scalp and wanted to get the next politician who was coming down the pike. And it has informed our reportage and our coverage of story. I mean, I was one of those people. I wanted to go. I wanted to be the next, you know, Barbara Walters and Dan Rather. I wanted to be that guy. And um, and then more and more and more as I got into journalism, I realized what a crock of crap it was. And then uh, not journalism per se, obviously, but what I mean is this, the Watergate narrative, it was just like, uh, I want to go, I want to do over on that story. And so, but I didn't know Till you explained it. This is where it all started uh, uh, in, in Watergate. And, and each reporter realized he needed to be on a team and wear a partisan jersey uh, to get scalps. And so that's where we are today, uh, wearing partisan jerseys to get scalps, money and riches. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen and give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs, and it makes us easier to find. 
Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed.